welcome to Various Things. I'm Gary Lama. Those sounds you heard at our opening are of Lucky and Low Limb, both rescued northern white-cheeked gibbons, which were recorded by today's guest, primatologist Caroline Raleigh. Caroline got their start in this field as an undergraduate at Tulane University, and then went on to Central Washington University for a master's in primate behavior and ecology over the past few years, has applied these studies, most notably as the director of Endangered Primate Rescue Center in the Cuc Phuong National Park in northern Vietnam. But the thing that may stand out the most about Caroline is the empathy and compassion they have for the living world around us and their personal passion and dedication to try and make things better. First, through understanding them scientifically, then taking those findings and trying to make the changes that seem to make sense. In short, Caroline is one of those folks that you hope exists in the field of science, and they are definitely real and have a lot to say about the world we are living in. Also, as Caroline takes the process and knowledge rather serious, they've asked me to provide their email address, welcoming and happy to be corrected in any statement they have made here, and happy to learn how to be better advocate for the people of the planet. And they also invite any questions from you, and they will learn right along with you. So in that spirit, you can email Caroline at car.rowley at gmail.com. I've also included a link to their email, as well as a couple links to resources on the episode page at our website, variousthingspodcast.com. With that said, let's begin. How did you get into the the field of uh, studying uh, gibbons? Yeah, so I... I have an undergraduate degree in anthropology and I took a few years off and basically decided I wanted to be involved in wildlife. And one of the only things I found I could do with my anthropology degree that's related to wildlife was a primatology graduate program. And I've okay. taken a physical anthropology course as an undergraduate. And I just remember being fascinated by uh, the physiology of gibbons. Um, so they actually, they have bone socket joints in their shoulders and wrists. So they're the only true brachiators, which basically means if you think about our shoulder joint, they have that in their wrist. So when they're holding onto a branch, their wrist has way more mobility than ours, and it makes it possible for them to move incredibly quickly throughout the forest. They're really beautiful to watch move. Uh, When I was in graduate school, um, I think I'd seen a movie about uh, orphaned orangutans, and like everyone, I felt really inspired by it. And I went and I talked to my advisor and she basically said, I said, you know, I love Gibbons, but I also have this other interest. And she said, okay, you can, you can go for orangutans and there's a lot of people really trying for that. Or you can focus on Gibbons and there's far fewer people focusing on a much more diverse group of primates and they need help. So that was good for me. And then I, the more I learned about Gibbons, I just, I fell in love with them. What did they need help with? I think uh, as species of primates go, gibbons are not the most well-known. But then I, I kind of have to be careful when I say that because they are one of the more, what we would say, uh, charismatic species of the forest. So they're, if you can introduce people to gibbons and they, and they enjoy learning about them and they feel taken by them uh, and they feel inspired to try and protect gibbons, then by doing so, they're going to hopefully protect a lot of other species that are maybe more difficult to get people behind, like uh, the dung beetle. One of, one of the things I love about, um, you know, your uh, approach to all this is 
how much you actually care about the animals, you know, about this. And, and even just saying that, I kind of feel weird because it's like the animals, you know, like it's like this other thing, but it's like the majority of creatures on this planet yeah. <laughs> you care a lot about, you know. And so like you're sitting, you're, you're sitting on like almost like you're saying you don't want folks to just protect cute animals. Yeah, it's kind of like anything that you look at, even us, we, I think we have this kind of um, maybe if we're talking about English speakers, but culturally ingrained idea that we are a pyramid. If evolution's a pyramid, we as humans are on the top of it and we're somehow, you know, above everything else. But I think increasingly we're starting to understand just kind of collectively that we're more of an intercombined circle and we are no more or less evolved than any other animal on this planet. And we all need each other um, to basically survive. We need the trees to bring oxygen and we need animals like gibbons to be eating nuts from those trees and dispersing them. So to say, you know, I only won't like that, I, that I'm interested in gibbons is to say like, that's, that's the, I am fascinated, intellectually fascinated by gibbons, but I hope that by trying to conserve gibbons that I'm, benefiting the forest and the globe as a whole. Right. Well, well, humans, I know we have like a biological, like uh, preference for some reason for certain facial combinations, you know, like, um, like we look for, like when we think of things that are, that are cute, it's usually like related to the way a baby looks like bigger eyes, that kind of thing. So like the anthropomorphic, I think I'm saying that wrong. Um, you know, characteristics no, right. of some animals will lead us to favor them when, you know, that might work good for our own survival. But when we're looking at it from kind of like a macro perspective of trying to help um, the entire ecosystem, it can hold us back because we'll all we'll end up with is just the fucking cute animals. Right. Right. So. Right. So like, or especially animals that we might come in conflict with like wolves. So we removed wolves from our ecosystem in North America and it had a cascading effect across our ecosystem. And as we reintroduce them, we see all these benefits coming back. And I guess it, wolves are also kind of uh, maybe a funny example because our dogs are domesticated wolves. And that goes back to what you're saying, which is as dogs domesticated kind of themselves, we co co-evolved with dogs. They started taking on, uh, I think it's neatnal is the word. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but basically um, characteristics of babies. So like larger eyes, um, things that we as humans do find cute and therefore are somehow inclined to take care of. There's a fascinating study in Russia about uh, a man who was domesticating foxes. He was kind of using this fur farm as his own scientific um, experiment. And what we saw happen to the foxes as so he was selecting them for um, personality. So basically being more willing to be around humans. And as he selected for that, the foxes actually, they started getting curly tails, floppy ears, um, and I think patchier coats. And all, all things that we see in our dogs that are different from wolves. Over how long of a but period? I, well, it's kind of like he did it on hyperspeed. So I think it was 10 generations um, that he got quote-unquote, domesticated foxes. But it's kind of like he sped through evolution because he was hand-selecting the foxes that he wanted to breed um, as being embryo cats. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah, evolution's crazy. Yeah, like it's that. pretty How fascinating. It, 
Wow. So like, do you like, so the Gibbons are obviously like your focus, but, um, overall, like kind of the motivation for your work, do you consider yourself like something like a, a conservationist or? I hope I'm a conservationist. That's certainly the goal. Sometimes I feel mostly just like a scientist though, because I kind of drifted between the world of academia and conservation and there can be tension there. Um, and it's, it's hard to get science that people want to fund or that's, academically interesting, but also directly benefits conservation. And there are a lot of people that are bridging that gap incredibly well. And then there are other people that, you know, maybe are just more interested in the intellectual side of things, but it can be hard to, to get from academia to actual conservation. One of the reasons I got so interested in Gibbons is that they are an incredibly vocal species, um, which is fascinating from an evolutionary standpoint in terms of you know, especially if we're looking at primates, then what, how, what does it have in common with human language? What are they communicating and what can we learn for about ourselves from what they're doing? But the other thing that I started to get more and more into is, especially if you're talking about the rainforest, the rainforest is such an acoustically rich place. How can we use the fact that they are so vocal to monitor their populations and protect them more effectively and from there, I started getting just really into a field called bioacoustics and passive acoustic monitoring. And I think the most fascinating thing I learned is from a guy, there's a TED talk, um, but he talks about the, I think it's like the acoustic niche hypothesis. But if you take a sound recording of like a landscape, so let's say we're in the rainforest, then theoretically every acoustic niche from like what you and I can hear and then above and below that should be filled by some animal, especially during um, the morning for the dawn chorus is when animals are going to like, as the sun is rising, that's when gibbons tend to call. Um, you should see a full spectrum of sound taking place. And if you don't, then you know that something is missing in that ecosystem. Wow. So and the it other, actually yeah. creates like an acoustical white noise almost. Yeah. And you'll kind of see animals taking turns to make sure that they're heard. But even inside of that, it's like if they're, if they're occupying different spaces, then hopefully they can pick out their own species and, and take whatever information they need from those sounds and go about living their lives effectively. That's amazing. In, in amateur radio, the FCC has what's called a band plan. And it, it allows, they basically break up all the frequencies and this kind of thing. And they specify which... Um, you know, which things, you know, like, uh, CB radios, uh, television, things, things like this, uh, normal radio, which can use which. So it sounds like nature actually has its own like frequency band plan. Is that basically what you're yeah. saying is like, Oh my God. And is you think yeah, exactly. that like evolved out of like need or. Yeah. Who knows? I mean, like why do, so I think ants communicate ultrasonically through pulses. I have no idea why. Right as COVID was happening, um, I was interested in studying, studying Loris vocalizations, which are mostly ultrasonic, which, as you can imagine, is kind of, it's like new, because previously, um, bioacquisitions could really only study what we could hear, and we were using sonograms, and then in the last, you know, 20 or 30 years, as electronic equipment has gotten so much better, a lot of people, I mean, I would say the field of people studying bats have really improved what we can do with ultrasonic research. But lorises, they do have some 
communication that we can here, but a lot of it is proptonic, and they are also uh, insect. Well, they're not exclusively insectivores, but they do they hunt insects. Um, I think it's like seventy percent of their diet. So being able to hear ultrasonically would be important to their evolution. But for us, I don't know why we would need to hear things that are ultrasonic. And again, is ultrasonic is maybe just kind of a, that's a human, that's a, it's a word that we've created and it just refers to things that we can't hear. It's kind of like one of those like ethnocentric, you know, like a picture of the earth with like America centered at the middle of it. <laughs> like, uh, like, right. You know, exactly. Everything. Cause ultrasonic really just means anything above 20,000 Hertz. Right. Yeah. Which is what we can hear. So like if we were to have a dog that somehow, you know, spoke human language and had them tell us what was ultrasonic, it'd be a way different frequency than, than we're, than what we're saying it is. Right. Yeah. I mean, we definitely have like set the standards for everything in this based around our own human idea of, of everything, you know, like, and, and a lot of that has just evolved based on like what we need to exist and thinking about that, like, you know, I wonder if some of those animals, their their communication might be outside of the spectrum of their enemy animals, you know? Um, I mean, yeah. that'd be like a really useful, <laughs> useful thing to be able to yes. like talk outside the spectrum of things that might kill you. <laughs> Absolutely. That's a, that's an amazing point. And that to go back to Loris's, I think they're like one of their predator. Well, yeah, birds, big cats and snakes. So if they're communicating ultrasonically, a big thing for lorises is, is being cryptic. So they, they're called slow lorises for several reasons, but one of them is if you watch them, they are just really slow. And part of that is like maybe cats would have a harder time hunting them at night because they're moving slowly. Um, and if they, if they come across a predator, they just freeze. Um, so I would imagine maybe communicating ultrasonically is also, yeah, part of their kind of protective mechanisms to not be prey or victims of prey, victims of their predators. I hope I'm right. I don't know if I'm right. <laughs> right. You, you talked about like the difference between like academia and then like kind of, I guess, what we might refer to as like, like applications. So like folks actually doing conservation versus like studying it and trying to understand it. Um, what are the groups that are really responsible for, you know, trying to maintain like, like, let's say like with the Loris, um, what are, what kind of entities are these that are actually trying to, uh, be kind of trying to help these populations? Yeah. So I think it's a whole system, right? So you have your grassroots, grassroots nonprofit, and then you have some really big organizations like the IUCN who the IUCN is kind of just a, an umbrella organization that has a bunch of different groups underneath it. Um, like they have a primate specialist group. They have a um, section on small apes, which is the Gibbons. They have, I believe, a section on large-bodied apes. They have um, small carnivores. They, so, and they're, they'll gather groups of people that are experts in the field and then come up with the listings that are endangered, critically endangered, con, you know, least concerned species or vulnerable species. But then you also have on-the-ground grassroots organizations that are generally in range countries that are trying to protect these animals. And I think what we saw during COVID is that grassroots organizations that are not reliant on 
kind of a more global approach seem to be more stable because those people are still there doing the work. And we also saw an increase. So if we're talking about lorises in particular, um, they are heavily trafficked in the pet trade. And a lot of that went online during COVID. It didn't necessarily reduce at all. It just took on a different platform. And that was, that's been previously true. You see people selling animals on TikTok and YouTube and Instagram and Facebook. It's, it's gone online, um, which as with everything else, um, but COVID doesn't right. seem to have slowed the trade in primates. Is that a big issue affecting the um, vitality of these communities? Absolutely. I would say, I mean, as with all animals, deforestation is a huge issue. Um, there are certain primates. So I used to work with langurs who they actually, they, depending on what genus they're in, they'll have three or four chambered stomachs and they're able to eat all these different leaves. Um, and so people will use them for medicinal purposes because they believe like, well, if they can eat, you know, this certain poisonous leaf, then it would, it'll give us some sort of a power um, or health. But then beyond that, I would say pet trade is probably, I don't know how those three things rank, but pet trade is devastating certain populations of primates, certainly lorises. Um, with gibbons, gibbons are seen in the pet trade quite frequently. And I'm not sure, I've never actually been able to find the, the study that did this, but what I've been told by a lot of people is, so gibbons live like 30 or 40 meters in the canopy. So if they're being hunted for the pet trade for about the first two years of their life, They'll, they do start to become more independent, but they spend a lot of time holding on to their mom and they'll shoot the mom from the canopy. So the mom falls down and then they take the baby from the mom. But during that fall, um, a lot of times the baby will also die. And if the baby doesn't die then, then they might die before they're sold as a pet. So if you see a gibbon as a pet, you can basically assume that 10 gibbons died for that gibbon to be sold. That's fucking horrible. Yeah, it's awful. Um, and it's the same with lorises. It's the same with a lot of species. And actually, so I'm on Facebook, you know, and I'm friends with a lot of different people in animal rescue and different types of animal rescue. And so the person I'm thinking of today is like an avid canine rescuer uh, and they shared a video of a capuchin monkey helping make some popcorn. And it's like the most painful thing because here's a person that cares deeply about animals and sees a monkey doing something cute and shares it on Facebook. But what they've done is perpetuate the pet trade because now that person, um, whoever it was that has that capuchin has like 10 million, you know, views on their video. However many of those 10 million people have thought, how cute. And maybe want to pet capuchin now, probably not that many will get them, but just the um, kind of the presence of primates on social media is fueling the whole thing because other people see it, they want them, or people are getting really popular on social media because they have pet primates. And so in a way, they're getting money back for being owners of these primates. And I think, especially in the States, the laws vary by state um, in terms of whether or not you're allowed to own a primate, some states totally illegal, some states states it's totally fine, and others you need a permit. And what that does is just open up loopholes. So if you go to a state where you can buy a primate and then you take them home to your state, 
where you can have them as a pet, you're totally fine, even though in your state you can't legally buy them. And the other oh, thing wow. it does is if there's, yeah, if there's any level of legal pet ownership, um, so let's say there's, there's someone, despite how I feel about it, there's someone legally breeding capuchin monkeys and selling them in, let's say, Missouri, how can we know if all of those monkeys are being bred in captivity versus being taken from the wild and transported here? So it just is kind of a loophole for animals to continue to be taken from the wild. And the same is true, you know, like ivory and rhino horn, there's, there's all kinds of debates over how we should manage that. Um, and one of the big problems we see is like, if there is a legal market, then it has this inevitable reality of the illegal market continuing to thrive because it can be sold on the market. At the same time, prohibition hasn't worked throughout history. So, you know, I don't have a solution, but certainly when you have a legal side of something that is involved in wildlife trafficking, it opens up a door for the illegal market to continue. Are there any countries that have seemed to like do well or places of the world that seem to have done well with reducing that through like laws or anything like that? I mean, do you know of anything that actually works? You know, I don't know. And I think the other problem we face is there's so much we don't know because it's illegal. So it's kind of one of those things that's hard to monitor because you can only monitor it through what is actually being confiscated. And so you have a lot of people, especially now that it's gone online, you'll have, you know, academics looking at trying to find how many of these animals are being sold online illicitly, which is something I started to get interested in um, when I was living in Vietnam and in conservation. And so I would find these YouTube videos. Um, and then I was told kind of one of two things. They might not actually have that animal and they're scamming you. So they're, they're saying, you know, pay this money up front and we'll get the animal to you. But it could just be a scam. So maybe they don't even have that animal at all. Um, and the other thing is like one time we found this video of two um, baby gibbons on YouTube. And so uh, the head keeper that I worked with called the number on the YouTube video and they said, uh, well, those baby gibbons are gone, but no worries. You know, if you want a baby gibbon, we can get one for you in the next five days. I do think that as education increases and people have more kind of like resources and opportunities, maybe these things will decrease. But the other thing we see is as wealth increases in certain countries, if wildlife trade is seen as a status symbol, then you actually might see it increase. If we think about pangolins, which are the most heavily trafficked mammal in the world, if you're a businessman, um, even if it's illegal to, to eat pangolin, they're so expensive. If you have the connections to get a pangolin and then you can share that with um, someone you're trying, you know, to impress, then you're going to go ahead and buy the pangolin because it's a show of power. Um, and as more people have money and pangolins become more endangered, it's this negative feedback cycle. So it's, it's all a really compli complicated situation. There's, there's certainly people passionate across the globe that are doing everything in their power to understand it and come up with meaningful solutions. Are there any groups that people can donate to or contribute to that, that actually help kind of fight animal trafficking? So absolutely. I'm going to be more familiar with what's going on in Vietnam just because that's more of my, like where I've been. 
Um, there's a, they're called ENV or education for nature, um, Vietnam, and they're an incredible organization there. It's, they started off as a grassroots organization investigating different, um, wildlife reports and they've really grown as an organization. Um, I think they just launched their website in English a few days ago, actually. Um, and they do, they do incredible work and I'm sure there are similar organizations across the globe. I can think of a few, but I don't, I almost feel bad listing off a few because I'm sure I'll forget other ones. But ENV, they're an incredible organization. Um, the Given Protection Society in Malaysia, um, I know that, I think it's actually Bam's birthday today, and she is doing incredible work, or she is. Um, I mean, there's just a ton, there's a ton of people with incredible hearts that are working really, really hard on these issues kind of going through all this, I mean, you've got so many things, like so many different factors that are, you know, affecting animal populations. Um, is, is climate change really the, the big thing that's the biggest danger to them? Yeah. I mean, I think it's all contributing to climate change because the way it's like, okay, if we're talking about wildlife trafficking or we're talking about deforestation, all of these things are just contributing to the fact that we're kind of hurtling towards destroying the ecosystems that we need. Um, so all there are 19 species of gibbons, and I believe all of them are either listed as critically endangered or endangered. Um, so we're going to lose some of these animals, and they're important for the, for the health of the forest. So it's kind of like as we see them disappear, we might not see that impact because the impact could be in, you know, seed dispersal, but over time, you're going to see it all fall. And if we don't have the rainforest, I mean, that's, that's a huge loss for being able to breathe on this planet. Um, and the other thing I think I have to mention if we're talking about the rainforest is palm oil. Um, and palm oil is something that you and I, I can, I mean, I don't, I'm not sure, but there's probably, I don't know, 15 different products in my house right now that have palm oil in them. My toothpaste, my shampoo, soap, your milk, cheese, almost everything. If I'm not wrong, didn't that kind of increase like in the last like 10 years? Because I don't remember really seeing it anywhere. Wasn't it like as a substitute for something else, like maybe high fructose corn syrup? When they started pulling that out, they started pulling, putting palm oil in? Maybe. That would make sense. Honestly, I didn't learn about palm oil until I went to graduate school. And I learned okay. that this is a huge thing in, in Indonesia, but it's also spreading, I think, up through Asia and into Africa. And the thing about palm oil is that it is a really, um, I don't know if you would call it like prolific or productive fruit. So I think WWF released something a few years ago that was basically like, because the big thing became like, well, you know, don't use any palm oil. But if we don't use palm oil and we move towards something like coconut oil, that's actually going to take more resources because coconut trees are less productive than palm oil trees. But the problem is monoculture. So if you're burning down a swath of forest and then once it's burned, you say, well, it's burned. So might as well put a palm oil plantation up. Um, then you've lost the forest and you're going to degrade the soil um, and, you know, basically destroy the habitat of some animals, even if some animals can survive for a time in a palm oil plantation. Um, so, then it moves to like, okay, well, we need sustainable palm oil. 
And my understanding of the problem with sustainable palm oil is that, you know, humans are corrupt. And so you can buy the label that says that it's sustainable palm oil and maybe a little bit of the palm oil in the product is sustainable, but it's hard to know if all of it is. It just becomes really complicated in terms, you know, it almost makes you want to pull your hair out. Like, well, what am I supposed to do? Um, but certainly I think if you see palm oil in some of the, you know, bigger brands, like if you see a palm oil in like Nestle or something like this, you can probably assume they took the cheaper route and it's probably not sustainably sourced. But is the problem really with it that people are just like cutting things down and just building like these kind of like crazy palm oil plantations? Is that, is that what the biggest issue is with it? Yeah. And so this might be something that I have to do a little bit of research on. Um, but my understanding is that it also has to do with forest fires. So people will legally burn swaths of forest. So the forest is gone. And then it's like, well, there's no forest here to protect. So can we put our palm oil plantation in? And if you get on Google maps and you look at Indonesia, that's a, that's a, you know, a, you can see how much the forest has been degraded. And the other thing is the edge of the forest is going to be drier because it's going to be exposed to the wind. So you're more likely to get fires. And then the more we cut our forest into small sections, um, the more of it is getting these like this kind of like drier winds. And then it's more easy, easily catching fire. And then we have more fires, let alone the fact that um, it's also degrading the forest. And so if we go back to Gibbons, um, Gibbons need continuous forests in order to to get around, they don't come to the ground. Or if they do, it, it's a very rare circumstance, um, maybe to get some minerals out of the dirt or something like this. But if they are living in a forest patch, they're not going to leave the forest patch, which means they're not going to be able to disperse and kind of like live how they should um, and share their genes across populations. So they're going to become isolated genetic populations of gibbons that can't disperse to the other parts of their species. So it almost becomes like this problem that just kind of starts like snowballing on itself then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It can feel, it can feel really overwhelming. Yeah. So let's talk about that for a second. How, <laughs> like, so you, I mean, so you're basically like a researcher and basically an activist. Yeah. Yeah. I hope so. And, and how do you deal with, looking at this thing that just seems insurmountable, you know, you're, you're, you're a intelligent person, but you're one person. Um, and I think a lot of folks, you know, might find themselves in these similar situations where they care about something, especially a lot of the people I'm around, they usually work towards trying to make things better. Um, how have you kind of dealt with, you know, because it's not like you're just, you know, helping one thing, but you're, you're kind of looking at this entire thing here. Um, how do you deal with kind of like trying to prioritize um, the, the kind of destruction you're seeing and, and maintain hope for it and, and, and still do good work? Yeah, I think that that is something I'm still trying to understand how I can take care of myself. Um, right. And a lot of, you know, you and I had a lot of really amazing conversations about that when I was living in Richmond. And I think, so when I was in graduate school, I got really depressed and I kind of started to feel like, okay, well, I'm a human and we're more or less a parasite and I don't really matter. So I need to go ahead and like forget about myself and dedicate everything 
to these animals that are becoming increasingly rare. Um, but that led me down like an even darker road of depression. So, so now I'm on this, like, okay, how can I balance my life and, and more or less accept the reality that things are pretty bad. Um, but I know that I want to be quote on the good guys. Like I know that I care about this. I know that it would feel even worse to, to turn around and walk away. So how do I stay involved while still taking care of myself? And that's, I'm kind of on this um, mission for balance right now. Um, right. Yeah. Well, I, I, I have felt very much the similar, uh, when I, I went vegan when I was like 15 or 16 years old. And after a certain point, I reached this thing where I was just like, wow, humans are just really like, like you said, like a parasite, like almost like a, just an infective bacteria. Like we just mutate and fuck up things. But over time I started to realize like, Oh, you're right. But we also like have a space program. And also like we make like cures for things. And for all of our fallibility, I also realized that like, we're like the only species and really like the only point in civilization that like have been able to make like a fucking internet and like things where we can like kind of motivate people around the world to like help stuff. So with all that negative stuff, we also have this really amazing kind of ability to actually care about things. Cause you really don't see that in other species where species re- reach a point where they start actually protecting other species, you know, like, right. um, and, and that's a really unique thing about human beings is that we actually do that. Like the fact that we're even having this conversation, like my cat is not <laughs> having this conversation today and um, no. it has to make those animals any less, but it makes us, it makes it really does put humans in this position of like, we have the power to destroy or save. And that's really amazing that we can destroy things that we can't even really begin to even understand or appreciate. You know, it it puts an amazing responsibility on, especially in a time when we're like so globalized where we don't understand, like, like you were saying about palm oil, like as individual people, we really don't have control too much over what we're really like, what, what's on the market. You know, I mean, we do a kind of with like boycott and stuff like that, but it's a thing where like humans have to kind of get together and work over time to like shape these things, to be more respectful to, you know, the overall goals of what we want the world we live in to be, you know? And when you're talking about these groups working together, the fact that you've heard of them and that you come from this continent, you know, and, and that you're talking about groups in another continent, it really kind of goes to show that there is this interconnectedness that might not be mainstream right now. It might be more kind of reserved for folks that, you know, have made the, their lives work and their life's passion. But seeing it kind of flip over from that, it does give me hope about that kind of thing, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, absolutely. I mean, humanity is amazing. And I think what you're saying, part of it is like kind of trying to open our, I try to open my eyes and see beauty and like tiny interactions that I have with people even if they just make a joke, like I had a guy the other day at the gas station at me, um, I can't remember, but basically he was saying, um, thing about like, Oh, have you seen my tow truck? And he had a tattoo of a truck on his toe, which has nothing to do with conservation, but, but just like kind of appreciate like the fact that like, this is, this is it for us. Like you get however many days you get on this planet. And if you don't enjoy it, what a waste. And people are incredible. And humanity is, capable of incredible things and even through pain like i mean music is what a gift to be able to enjoy music and i think that's part of how i ended up studying gibbons is i love sound 
Um, and I, and if there's something I miss from COVID, it's the ability to go to concerts and have that like kind of community of people enjoying something and maybe feeling like a larger emotion together. But yeah, there, there is something beautiful in humanity. And I also think, you know, I'm at the age where like you have a kid, a lot of my, a lot of my friends have kids. I might want kids. And I've kind of started to think about it like, okay, every species goes extinct. The world is going to be fine. Like the world doesn't need us, but it's like almost palliative care at this point. Like humanity is going extinct. We're going to take a lot of species with us. That's at this point, just the inevitable. And in a lot of ways, like we are part of nature. So it is the natural flow of the globe. It's what's happening. So how do I, how do I live my life in a way that like it, maybe I set, the next generation up to make it last a little bit longer. Or I think it's really hard to think about like, you know, our, our kids or our grandkids living in like a, a zombie apocalypse world. So it's like, okay, well, how can we leave this planet gracefully or as gracefully as possible? So it's kind of like, you know, when things aren't going well, do you burn it all down or do you try and sew the good parts together and like learn from the toxicity and, and get rid of the toxic stuff and hopefully you know, move, move forward. And, you know, maybe, who knows, maybe if we are thoughtful and we, we try and make things last as long as possible, humanity does find a solution because humanity is incredible and very bright. And I think one of the things that makes us human is the ability to pass on knowledge um, from generations before us uh, onto the future. So our capacity to learn is incredible. So maybe there are solutions and I'm a nihilist to think that, you know, it's all going to burn down, but maybe it is all going to burn down, but I can't do anything about that. So I might as well be good to the people around me and try and have some joy. Well, you know, I think that's the thing that I've learned from looking at animals is that when I was younger, I, I think a lot of folks that just want to change stuff, you know, they want to, it's, you know, it's always, they want to change the world or something like that. And at a certain time in my life, I realized that um, the people around me were kind of suffering because I wasn't focused on like being good to like the immediate people around me. And that included myself, you know, like I was like just kind of working really hard and like all this stuff. And, you know, they, but you look at like something like a group of, I mean, just any animal <laughs> and like all they do is like work with the other animals of their species around them, you know, like they're just working with what's around them. I, I think that's more natural to try and just to try and take care of the folks around you, but, and yourself, but also since we do have that human capability, I think it, it almost would be disrespectful to it to also not try to extend to whatever limit we can, the abilities to manipulate things like communication, travel, um, and, and all these other great things that we have to also try and affect the world in larger ways too. So it kind of became like a, a dichotomy of like, you know, making sure the, the world around me is, is good and I'm serving that well, but then also to not neglect that, like, you know, we have things like rocket ships and fucking <laughs> airplanes and internet, and we can actually like do things outside of our local sphere as well, you know? Um, but that is a very... Uh, yeah, I mean, when I think about that, having a kid, I, you know, the only thing I can come to the conclusion of is just like, I just try to do my best, you know, and, and also never neglect the exponentiality, the exponentiality of how change can occur, 
because that can go both ways. Like things can get exponentially worse. Like, like it will, they will exceed what predictions are. And simultaneously they will, especially when you're talking about like whole phenomenon of like in a natural environment, they can get exponentially better because it's very hard to see how every little thing, um, actually ramps up, you know, a curve of change. Um, just like what you're talking kind of with those fires, like once the forest burns, now you have these like separated forests, the rate of fire now and the devastation that a fire will occur is like multiplied drastically. But by that same token, if you can, uh, if you can ease things like that, um, in some way you can kind of get this curve that, you know, might, when you're looking at it over time, it, 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 it's going to look drastic. So I don't know. I I try to keep that in mind. But, um, well, well, what Um, I was going to, I mean, I don't know exactly how this connects, but something it made me think of is like another going back to acoustics, something that really inspired me when I was in graduate school is this guy who was taking, so cell phones, I don't know if you know the mineral that's in our cell phone, our computers, and it's mined somewhere in central Africa, I want to say, and it's devastating for gorillas. So gorilla conservationists are all about recycling, um, this, this piece of our cell phone so that we don't continue to take it from their habitat. Um, so this guy was taking recycled cell phones and connecting them to solar panels. He was using the microphones in them in, I believe, in Indonesia. And then he programmed the sound of a chainsaw, so people who were logging. And so then if you can triangulate that sound, then it would alert uh, forest rangers, and they would go and they would catch the logger in the act. And the loggers that were caught, you know, and he also had talked um, – during this, we're so surprised that they were caught because you're talking about a massive rainforest that is very loud. They were like, no, we're not going to try this again because we can't believe we got caught in the act. Like, that's insane. So the capacity of people to these, these really insurmountable problems might actually have a solution if we can all work together. And some of them can be solved using recycled materials, which is even better. Um, and it's all small pieces of knowledge building on top of one another because, like, we couldn't program the sound of a chainsaw in a recycled cell phone if we didn't have whatever program is used on our phones to, uh, like, when you hear Shazam, like, when you hear a song that you want to recognize, it's that same, um, I don't know if it's machine learning software, but software that's been created for another purpose that we're then using for conservation. And it's all these right. little pieces of knowledge and science building on each other to do something that is incredible. Yeah, I mean that's you know, that kind of taps into like for all the stuff that you know we we end up um, getting into these days. Um, there's a lot of amazing technology out there that just isn't being used to the best capability that it could be. Um, you know, there's a lot of people figuring out how to get people to like things on social media. Um, right. You know, figuring out how to like sell things on social media. But that same technology, those same um, algorithms, those same methods of approach to discerning things could do amazing things in other, in other realms. But I think it's really just motivating people to give it a shot, you know, because there is yeah. that, that kind of, um, you know, a lot of folks, they, they get very stuck on just kind of, you know, trying to do the most for themselves or whatever. And um, yeah, I mean, it's great when folks aren't doing that. Um, when you got into doing audio research um, with the Gibbons, um, I, one of the things that I, I connected with you about when I first met you was that you were basically 
you know, I have a background in audio recording and you were doing audio recording with these Gibbons. Um, what is the main goal of, of recording the audio? Is it to try and understand like communication or um, what exactly? It kind of goes back to what you were saying, like, Get us a little bit of information and like who knows what someone with different brain is going to do with it. So I started becoming interested in like, okay, well, what are people using the fact that we have this vocal species? What are they doing with it? And it was mostly um, population surveys. But I started reading more and more literature about primate communication in general. And so my research focused on whether or not the way that a gibbon was singing had any indications of their health. So uh, if we think about lungs as a proxy for overall um, physiological health, as you, uh, you know, expand and contract your lungs, how quickly is a given able to do this? What frequency are they able to, to reach? And then, like, what is the gap between notes? And I'll definitely send you some audio recordings because um, I ended up using a paper that was looking at differences in Gibbon songs to see if they, if they were genetic differences, and they found out that they were. So I study a genus called Nomascus Gibbons. There's four genuses of Gibbons. And inside Nomascus Gibbons, there's seven species. And I studied the four southern species. And to the untrained ear, and even to me now, I mean, they are remarkably similar. And you almost have to, you have to put them on a computer and do some pretty intense analysis to see the fact that different species are singing slightly differently. Um, so I, I took the parameters that they were using to see the genetic differences. And then I um, basically did some data analysis to see if these measures had any correlation with their age and weight. I did a few different things, but age and weight were the, the two main things that I ended up focusing on because generally you can think of those as also being related to health. And I did find that based on certain parameters inside of their great calls. I, fo I focused on the females. Um, the, those did correlate with their age and weight, which on its own, maybe not that interesting, but I think of it as kind of a small piece of the pie. And so as time goes on, hopefully I live for quite a few more years. Hopefully I become friends with other bioacquisitions. And my hope would be that I get to work with people who are, um, they're doing passive acoustic monitoring of gibbons, and they're focused on vocal fingerprinting. So the other thing about gibbons is their calls are individually specific, which makes sense if we think about it correlating with their individual health. Um, it's not like they have like a freestyle in the middle of it. They're all singing in a pretty, um, they're, they're singing in, a, in the same format, but inside of that format, what's the gap between notes and what is the frequency range is what ended up being important in my research. So I would hope to take my research, make it a little bit more foolproof and say, yeah, for sure, um, the way they're singing has to do with their health, and then collaborate with other scientists that are monitoring wild populations and looking at individual fingerprints, and from there see if we can see the individual health of the gibbons they're studying. Um, and where I get really, like, joked about this is like, okay, well, if we release gibbons, it's really hard to track them um, because you don't want to put like a radio tracking collar around their neck um, or just even in the long term, you don't want to put a radio tracking collar on an animal. But if we release a gibbon and we know their individual vocal fingerprint um, and then we could also see if they're maintaining their health based on how they're calling, that's a really, to me, a really exciting way of 
non-invasively monitoring how they're doing post-release. At the same time, I think, yeah, I think a lot of, um, we might be spending too much money on rehab and release, but it's one of those things that really tugs at people's heartstrings. And it certainly tugs at mine because I've, I've worked with animals that are in rehab centers, but even just in general to, to be able to contribute some academic understanding that could benefit the wild population as we monitor them. That would, I mean, that would be it for me. I think, I think even now I could die happy, but I would die like really happy if I accomplished that. Yeah. And so like the end result of that, like if, you know, if you kind of went down that road, you would be able to tell possibly like very easily the actual size of a given population. You would be able to tell the health of a given population and you would probably be able to tell like the migratory patterns of a given population. Yeah. 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 I mean, hopefully, I mean, it's a lot of microphones, so it'd be pretty expensive, but um, especially the migratory thing, because we don't really know. It's so hard to keep track of gibbons. We don't really understand like their dispersal patterns. And if we can understand their dispersal patterns, we have a better understanding of how much forest they need. At the same time right now, I think it's kind of like, okay, they need as much forest as we can leave them because it's getting pretty bad. Um, But yeah, absolutely. All those things. So it's kind of just science building on science. And hopefully we do something meaningful with the data. I also think it would be really cool, uh, like in in national parks that are, you know, before COVID that were well-traveled by backpackers. If we could, if you have like a population of gibbons that are fairly well-known and you could put like a Shazam on your phone. And so like, let's say a backpacker or some tourist is like, you know, hiking through a national park and they hear a gibbon and they can record them with their phone. And then that somehow contributes to citizen science. That gets me really excited, but that seems, you know, maybe a little too, I think optimism, optimism is, is really great as long as I'm also realistic about the fact that it, it might not happen. It's kind of like that cliche saying like, aim for the moon, you'll end up somewhere in the stars, you know, it's like, what a cool idea, but let's see what we can actually do. That seems actually kind of realistic though. I don't know. I was down at the river one day and um, I ran into this lady and she was just out there on her own accord and she was just, uh, looking at owls, you know, and, and I kind of started talking to her cause I love owls and, um, she would just kind of upload all this data on her own. Like she wasn't affiliated with anyone like professionally, but it was her hobby and she would upload whatever data she had with some local group and they would share it with another local group. And I've, I've encountered other folks like up at Lewis Skinner, there was a beekeeper that was working there for a little while and they're running a hive. And apparently the hive was tied in with NASA. Um, oh. All of its data would get sent to NASA to help, uh, I think, understand migratory patterns of bees possibly, or maybe it was, it was something related to, I mean, the, the end thing was climate change, you know, but like it was part of this kind of NASA program. And, you know, it's it very interesting how there is little things like just, you know, if you had an app on your phone or you're hiking, if you just took, you know, if you hear something calling and you took like five seconds and just, you know, pushed a button on the app, recorded it, the app uploaded it, like we can all kind of carry the weight of this future thing. And you're also kind of like kind of tapping into this other part that like, for a lot of things in this world, there's like an organization that's in charge of it. But for like understanding things like climate change and the health of our actual earth um, is it's really coming to like, from like a lot of just 
kind of like volunteer and like kind of like extra, like not not people's jobs. It, it's part of like people's like it's a kind of like a side part of people's aims in their research or this kind of thing um, where they're connecting these things together that we're actually getting this data. And it, it kind of it, it's cool that people are like collaborating like that. But it's also kind of sad that there's, you know, businesses that people go to every day or that, you know, get all this money to do X, but there's no one that's really making sure that these things are getting tracked. It's, it's kind of getting tracked on like a kind of a side level of, of, of a whole other different, uh, you know, industry usually. For sure. And I, I mean, citizen science to me is like, if we could tap into people, it's, 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 it's twofold because people get engaged and it's this whole group. If people do want to be engaged then you're empowering them to do so. And it's all of this data that's useful to scientists and is hard to gather. Um, and if anyone is, you might be interested in this, um, iNaturalist, it's all photo-based, so it's not sound-based, but like I, I love box turtles. And if you see a box turtle crossing the road, you should pick them up appropriately. Uh, I'm sure there's an internet resource and then move them in the direction that they're going. But I always take a picture of them and then I put it on the iNaturalist. Um, and then if two people agree with the species that you think it is, or even if you don't know the species, um, someone else, people are really passionate about, like I put frogs on there and someone else comes and they speciate them. And if two other people validate their species, then all of a sudden it's, it's research grade and herpetologists in the States or, or across the globe, it's, a, it's an international app, can use that for their science. So I hope oh, that in the future, awesome. citizen, yeah, I hope that citizen science becomes more and more of an option for collecting data. Because what a what a beautiful untapped research uh, resource, and what a great way of getting people involved. There's a there's an app on your phone where if you hear a bird, I think that it's called a bird song ID. It'd be hard to do in Richmond because there's so much background noise. But if you're ever on a hike where there's not so much anthropogenic noise. Um, you can record a bird species and it'll tell you what species you've heard. I, I read a book many years ago that kind of, you know, basically I, I learned that this was a thing, but all science used to kind of be the hobby of rich people. I, I can't remember the specific fields. I think it was like related to studying birds and this kind of thing, but it was talking about like in Victorian England most of the original sciences around, you know, basically understanding everything, um, it, w- it was basically like just leisure activities um, for for just bored, rich people. And, you know, over time, once universities kind of got like established and that kind of thing, it, it moved into there and then leisure activity. I think this book was about like the history of leisure activity because I was interested in like the sociology of that. But um then it kind of went, you know, back into these universities and this kind of thing. But it makes sense that it would be coming back to to just kind of normal people with extra time because of the technology. And technology is a great leveler for creating well, it can be. It can be a way to create opportunity <laughs> with limited time. You know, it can also be a thing to take away time with <laughs> yeah. I mean but yeah. Yeah, yeah um, for sure. Well, yeah. And I guess well, as you're saying that, I'm like, well, is it any different? Because universities are still kind of like gate holders of, you know, certain certain amounts of privilege, for sure. Um, and to go back to what we were ta- when we were talking about conservation versus academia, 
one of my biggest gripes with academia is that a lot of the science that's published, um, you either have to be associated with an institution to have access to it, or you have to pay for it, which means that field researchers in the countries where those animals are living, or I mean, also in the state, they might not be able to access it. And right. I mean, it's kind of, it's, then it goes into open source, but then to publish open source, I think it's like $2,000. So like, if I want to publish my research, I either need to be a member of the journal and pay those member fees, or I have to somehow come up with the money um, to publish in an open source journal, which, I mean, I think that's great for science, but like, I don't have $2,000 to submit to um, an open source publication. And I could be wrong about this, but that's, that's kind of my understanding of how it works. But the good news Why is, is there's a Russian right. website where you can hack almost all academic articles called SciHub. Oh, wow. So we've, yeah, we found our way. Still, like, does everyone know that SciHub exists? And it shouldn't have to exist in the first place. Why does it cost $2,000 to publish on an open source journal? You know, that's a great question, and I do not know the answer to it. I've definitely had the apprehension that you're, you're feeling towards, like, universities in terms of being the gatekeepers. However, in this world we live in, with things like QAnon and uh, yeah. all this crazy, like, how, like, I found myself going back to things like, Jesus Christ, like, because I, I, I grew up, like, fucking hating the New York Times, you know, because I was like, oh, fuck them, they're, like, gatekeepers of, like, you know, because the government would come in there and, like, lean on people, like, don't talk about this, like, you know, because this company wants to be able to, like, you know, sell bananas in fucking Ecuador and like, or, you know, farm bananas down there. And we don't want to like have it look like it's some kind of weird imperialist fucking thing going on. So there'd be leaning like that. Um, you know, and I'd get mad because, you know, publications were printing stuff like that. But at the same time, they also had these journalistic standards that um, they kind of had to weave these roads between and they actually had to fact check things and all this stuff. And, and the same thing kind of with academia, like, you know, on, on the uh, corrupt side of it, you've seen there, there's been, you know, companies that would, you know, pay some, you know, it'd be like a study that was verified by like two people and they work for the same company or something like that. And these would be things that didn't really, you know, from a research standpoint, they'd be looked at as not really a good study because the study was flawed or whatever. And it's obviously kind of bought out. But comparatively, there's this, you know, trend now to just not believe anything that is attached to a gatekeeper or institution or anything like that. Um, how do you feel as a researcher that, you know, you're, you're sitting here like kind of diving over these pools of things that have been vetted and, you know, um, multiple people with, with uh, various levels of um, um, expertise in this have agreed. Yeah, this is valid. You know, they've checked out all the data. Um, how does it feel to live in a world <laughs> where, you know, there's actually policy now that's being informed by things that have none of that? And it's all appealed on the basis of emotion. Things like, you know, opposing the idea that climate change is an actual thing. Yeah, it seems like a real cultural problem. Because at this point, at least in our country, it seems like if you have an opinion, it doesn't really matter what the facts are. Because no one trusts facts. That's the first thing. Is like we have so much mistrust that I think is kind of just put into. If we talk about Facebook again, it's put into the fact that like if I like certain things, then it's just going to be a positive feedback loop of my beliefs to the point that I'm not going to be able to hear reality or science, no matter how 
well-researched and checked that it is. Um, no, it's incredibly frustrating. And it, I, I don't see us <laughs> making the right choices if we continue to mistrust science. At the same time, along the lines of what you're saying is like, scientists have an agenda. Like, there's not a journal for insignificant results. So there's a lot of pressure for whatever you thought you were going to find. You need to find it. Um, and there's actually been some whistleblowing, at least in my field, um, of graduate students saying, hey, our professor told us, you know, to ignore X, Y, or Z. Um, and inside of that, there's a push to make all data. Well, some people are pushing for data to be open source. And I, so from a theoretical level, I'm like, yes, absolutely. And then I found myself getting a little bit selfish. Like, no, I woke up at 4 a.m. and I got these recordings. So I want to get all the information I can from them and publish all I can and further my career, you know, to whatever extent possible before I share these recordings with everyone else. But that's really selfish because even if I made those recordings, it's not like I own Gibbon vocalizations. And if I have the privilege of recording them, why wouldn't I make those recordings available to everyone? Because we don't know what ideas they're going to come up with, how it might benefit the Gibbons. Um, and also, quite frankly, I think imposter syndrome, syndrome is, is so real. And this is my first time doing research. And I would absolutely love it if someone took 400 hours of their life to make sure that what I did was correct. But I don't think anyone's going to do that. Um, but I certainly feel like at some point I need to put my recordings in some sort of an open source database for other people to use, especially, you know, I think COVID's taught us a lot, but like, it's not really necessary for us to, to travel across the globe and it's not environmentally beneficial by any means. So if someone can get their degree and start their career from recordings that already exist, that I'm willing to share, that makes total sense to me. But I also understand like that selfish side because it's such a rat race and there's so much pressure. Well, and also like, you know, me being a musician, like that, that is something I, I toyed with earlier in my life of, you know, I, I, I got, I was very idealistic. And for many years I would only release my music for free. And at a certain, cause it just seemed like a fucking, I don't know, like just if you, if you ever start a band and you go out and play, like one of the worst things I would feel is when I'd have to like someone want to get like our cassette tape or something like that. And I'd have to, or our CD and I'd have to tell them this price that was, you know, maybe more money than they had or, you know, detract from something else they would get, especially when you're dealing with like folks that are like have less money or something like that. Um, but at a certain time I had to kind of respect like, well, you know, I have to pay my rent. And, you know, also like not only that, but I need to be able to have a viable life, you know, like I need to be able to <laughs> relax and not worry about bills and stuff. And so that brings up an interesting thing for scientists and researchers is like all these folks need to be able to have sustainable lives. Like they can't just like, like that whole thing of like, well, if you're going to be a teacher, prepare to live in poverty. Like that, I don't think that choice should should have to be like that, you know, um, especially when you look at the value that these folks bring to the world. Um, and so, you know, how you deal with that on the music side of it is, you know, people kind of companies kind of created this kind of cartel idea of what music should sell for. And now we're seeing it shift with things like Spotify and things like that. And the industry is adapting. 
But it makes me wonder if, you know, from the research side of it, if there was to be more of a, let's say, like an open source kind of um, depository, they would need to get some kind of pricing thing in line for Mm. all people, the people that use it, the people that contribute to it, that, you know, in a larger scale, it does allow people to have um, a life where they can flourish, you know, like, cause, cause it, you know, he, being a human being is not just about getting by, but it's also about like, how can you thrive? Like, how can you have the resources and things like this to, um, you know, feel good in the morning enough to be, you know, making worthwhile things rather than just, you know, <laughs> uh, getting through the day. Um, and, and, you know, that's something that maybe over time we'll see kind of pop up as this kind of shift happens, which does seem to be occurring, where there is this huge kind of gap um, between the information that needs to be kind of shared and where universities have, have kind of typically um, held, held themselves. I wanted to get your thoughts on when you were doing research in Vietnam, um, you worked at was it the National Zoo there? Uh, it's called the Endangered Primate Rescue Center. So is, is, is it in the middle of like a forest or is it near a city or what exactly? Yeah, so it is, it's about two and a half hours south of Hanoi. It's in Cook Phuong National Park, which is actually the first national park in Vietnam. And uh, so now I'm going to get on another kind of tangent, which is, that the national park system in Vietnam is based on the national park system in the U.S. One of the things I inherited from the U.S. park system was that people should be taken or removed from the areas that are declared national park lands. So what we saw happen in Cook Phuong National Park is the Hmong people were displaced to the buffer zone. Um, and the consequences of that are great. I mean, first of all, you're removing people from lands that they are culturally tied to and you're removing them from their way of life. Uh, Also, you're opening up a forest for anyone to wander into and take animals and other forest products from. So it's kind of an interesting, like, yeah, I was living in the national park. It was incredible. It was beautiful. It was also silent. There were hardly any animals left there. Um, There was a, a cave, like maybe 20 minutes into the national park and the national park is long and skinny with a road going all the way through it, which is also kind of a recipe for poaching. But I remember I was, I would go to this cave and I would just do the stairs for exercise. And one day I, I was, I'm, I'm, you know, sound focused. So I was getting upset that there wasn't much sound in the forest, but I could hear a bird calling and I thought, you know what? at least I can hear this one bird like so clearly and and there's nothing else obscuring their voice. So I'm just going to appreciate that I can hear them really clearly. And then I started hearing blasts go off. Like I didn't know if it was gunshots or mining. And I asked my friend about it later and he heard the same thing and he thought it was mining, but yeah. So uh, that's probably not the answer you were looking for. (laughs) Yeah. I did live in a national park. Oh my God. See, I mean, you know, and I can't imagine that they set out to create that on purpose, you know, like, no, I, I really don't believe that. I think a lot of the evil quote unquote in this world 
comes from a lot of just little compromises, like people just making, you know, they maybe know that they're doing not the right thing, but it's not a horrible thing they're doing. I mean, it's not like someone just decided to walk in there and just obliterate all the animals in that forest. But it, it's just folks making these little compromises. They know like, oh, this isn't, this isn't really a good one that you end up with something like that probably where the, the, the end result isn't really close to what was probably set out to um, achieve, you know, and sometimes those, those, those choices can't be obvious, like, like that road. Yeah. Like it can also, it can serve as a way to, you know, get through the forest or it could serve as a way for poachers to come in and fucking take everything. Yeah. I, I don't think it was, I don't think it was malicious by any means. I think that we didn't have the understanding of how deeply connected people are because I think this was the 1960s, how deeply connected we are to our landscape or how deeply connected people can be to the landscape. So there's a, an essay called um, The Trouble with Wilderness or maybe The Problem with Wilderness it's by William Cronin. And it's like 20 pages and it's been a few years since I've read it. But the thing that stuck out to me is like, I mean, he goes in, it's kind of a um, philosophical article and it talks about the concept of wilderness but how beautiful we think wilderness is and that we think wilderness is the absence of people. And then if we all think of, you know, some point we've probably all seen the screensaver of half dome on an iOS computer. It has that incredible Valley. Well, that Valley was farmed for, I don't know, centuries by indigenous people. And it, that landscape looks that way because of how humans were interacting with that environment. Um, so this thing that we all can like kind of associate with wilderness and a lack of humanity um, has actually been created by humanity. Um, but inside of that, wow. I, I, I by no means think it was malicious. I think it's just kind of a product of us not quite understanding how to do conservation right. That makes sense. And, you know, I've never thought about that until you just said that, like, which seems to horrible because i mean yeah like yeah. if you think about it yeah like I, I guess the way we've been kind of approaching conservation is to like you know keep keep these things safe from us like let's put them <laughs> over there and protect it which makes sense i mean but also like it it prevents that environment from interacting the way that it originally well that it originated um what do you think is, I mean, do you have like an, a picture in your mind of like, what do you have an ideal uh, scenario of, of like how to set up areas that can foster, you know, good environmental biomes? You know, I think going back to, to gatekeeping, one of the first things we have to do, and I think there definitely is a movement towards this, is remove the academic or like the current understanding that's on top as being the understanding that's actually on top and start to empower the voices of people that have been disenfranchised and removed from these lands and hear what they have to say about that conservation. Um, I listened to a Manga Bay podcast a few months ago, and I wish I could remember more of the details, but uh, the girl who was talking, her main argument was that we see more successful conservation when the people who are indigenous to those lands are the ones that are in charge of those lands because they have the historical and cultural knowledge of how to interact and protect those lands. 
Yeah. And it's part of their culture. I mean, they actually have like cultural, like norms and, and things like that built up around and traditions built up around dealing with things in those environments. Yeah. Like, I mean, I think there's uh, like the Yakima tribe in Washington, their understanding of, of salmon and their consequential understanding of what's happened to salmon with all of the dams is probably far greater than what our academic understanding could be. Or maybe I shouldn't be so harsh on academia. Maybe we just need to collaborate and, and work together. Because, again, it's there's so much information out there. And if we could all listen and respect and, and find a way to work together and, like, build off of each other's ideas, maybe maybe we do have a shot at humanity lasting a little bit longer than the next 60 years, you know? Maybe. Well, it's, it's, it's amazing talking with you because I'm realizing that the problem of fucking global warming is also, and just, you know, everything going on with the earth um, is also a problem of, of racism, of um, uh, ethnocentrism, of, uh, yeah. I mean, just all these other issues that, you know, are accumulating and like, we don't know how to treat certain animals well and we don't know how to like take care of things properly yeah yeah i that that oh my god <laughs> or even like if we just if we just talk about covid like okay so covid most likely started um through some sort of a zoonotic transmission um and most likely not from a domestic animal probably i think they think it's somewhere along the lines of like bat snake pangolin i'm not sure i don't know if anyone knows but these are animals that are poached from the forest so then we have to look at like why is someone poaching an animal from the forest poaching is hard work the forest is not like a, a particularly friendly place so then we have to think about like what are people's options and why are they making those choices and it goes back into racism poverty power and trying to create opportunity not really even for themselves but probably for their children in a lot of cases. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, even what's going on now and if people get all upset about COVID and what's doing to the economy and all of this, but if we go back to the beginning of it, its source, in my opinion, comes from wildlife trafficking that is fueled by racism and disparity. Um, so it's all, so it's all pretty connected. Yeah. Exactly. And I think wildlife trafficking is, it's the most behind like human trafficking, drugs and illegal weapons. Then you find wildlife trafficking at the most prolific illicit market in the, on the, on the globe. So it's not, it's not small potatoes. And this shit's all in your head all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes I, um, I do mindfulness. <laughs> God damn it, dude. Or, 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 oh or, or I obsess over unhealthy things like relationships, you know? Yeah, no, I feel you. Well, I mean, but that's the thing is like, you know, I've talked to a lot of activists and like, I don't know, like the, the sphere, I mean, there's a million things to worry about, but like, oh my God, I've never had a conversation with somebody that has gone as full circle through like fields as the one we just had. Well, thank you for letting me talk to you, and thank you for talking to me. I love our conversations, Gary. Me too. Despite oh the depressing, God, the depressing overwhelming... <laughs> I learn something every fucking time. I mean, oh my God. 
And that concludes my interview with Caroline Rowley. I'd like to thank Caroline for taking the time to talk with me. We have some links to related topics on the episode webpage at VariousThingsPodcast.com, as well as links to our other episodes. This has been Various Things. Thanks for listening.